0: This morning, we also start a new series and we're calling it Preparing Our Home. We are physically preparing a new home for our church, uh, but something was on my heart that we need to prepare us um, as the people as well when we are going into a new season. Uh, uh, Two years ago, Beck and I were placed with Sam, um, uh, and and, uh, if you know anything about the adoption world, it is a very quick process. This is the process. They give you a call, and you become a parent overnight. That's the process. There's not a lot of time to prepare for anything. But by God's grace, uh, for our particular story, we were uh, given three months' notice, which is absolutely unheard of. Um, It is a completely unique story, how God actually um, gave us insight that Sam would be coming into our lives. And so we got to prepare our house and all of that. But one of the things about the adoption process as well is that they force you to learn about all sorts of stuff like trauma, attachment, um, and, and, and parenting skills and development. It, we were tested on the development stages of kids. How many parents <laughs> were tested on what happens when your kid turns two? And so, when we were going through this process, you know, and we we're telling people about this, people were like, we should be doing this in high school, With all these young, dumb kids, if you will, sometimes, you know, know, leavers is is always a time when you go around and you go, okay, you guys got a lot of growing up to do, but that's okay, we love you. Um, But we prepared ourselves. We learn about um, all sorts of different aspects that grew us so much. And, you know, the truth is that even though we did all that preparation when Sam came in, it was still... So hard. But I shudder to think about what life would be like if I didn't prepare myself. If I didn't understand that Sam would come into our lives and be completely distraught because his life was turned upside down. I'll be like, I'm providing so much love for you. Is my love not good enough for you? Why are you crying? I mean, even biological parents feel that. What more? You know, I got I turned into a parent overnight and you don't like me. It's a terrible thing to feel, except I know that it's not that Sam doesn't like me, he's still kind of figuring life out. And so it's like, oh, it's not about me. It's about us going into something new. And so there's all of these things that I am so glad that I prepared for. And I feel that in this next season of life as a church, one of the words that I was getting is that I think God wants to bring new life. I don't know what that exactly means, I don't know how many people it might represent, or I don't know what's going to happen within us as well, but I sense that God is bringing new life into our church. And in that new life, it means that we need to prepare for that new life. We need to know how to steward that life. We need to know how to care for that life. We need to learn uh, about that life, right? And so over the next few weeks, we're going to talk about preparing ourselves, preparing our home, preparing our hearts for the life that God wants to bring. And we're going to focus on Acts chapter 2, 42, verse 47. And let me just read it and then we're going to dive into it. It says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing their proceeds to all as any had any need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now, I I, I love this passage, and I've heard this passage many times. This is about the early church, except this is not how they thought of themselves. They didn't know that they were the early church. They didn't even know the word Christian. In fact, the word Christ wasn't even something that was really familiar with them because they were Jewish, and so the word Messiah was far more in tune with their culture, except messiah doesn't really roll off the, the tongue, and so we went with the Greek Christ and Christian, and that's what we have today. But they, who were they in this passage? They were Jews who realized that Jesus was the fulfillment of the Old Testament, And they came together because they just realized, oh, Jesus, he is the Messiah and we want to learn more about this life. That was what was going on here. And so as I dug into a little bit more about who these people were and what were they doing, Something really stirred in my heart about us needing to, uh, to maybe come back to some of these things. So let me, let me just paint a picture for you. This is recorded in the book of Acts, or as we might also know it, the Acts of the Apostles. The Apostles are, in this point in time, um, the disciples who followed Jesus, um, basically the 11, minus Judas. And so there's the 11 of them. And then now they added another guy, his name is Matthias. And then they are now considered the Apostles. They are the ones that continue Jesus's ministry and Luke uh, records that and is a part two because Luke also records what happens in Jesus's ministry in the gospel of Luke so it's like a part one part two read them together it's brilliant so he wants to record and he writes this down in himself in the book of Luke he says that I am writing an accurate and orderly account of the Christian church basically how did this church get to where it is today how did we arrive at this church and at that time of writing and i'll come back to this was somewhere between 80 60 to 80 80 that's what a lot of scholars say that's around the time just remember that date and we'll come back to it and so luke Records Jesus' ministry. He tries to trace it so that we can see, oh, this is how this group of people arrived at where they are today. And so he traces Jesus' ministry and then he comes to the book of Acts and he records, right? And so we come to Acts chapter one and Jesus is speaking to his disciples and then he says to his disciples, I'm going to go to heaven. You need to wait in Jerusalem for the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so, um, the the disciples, the apostles, these are the people who led the early church. They didn't get it. How do I know they didn't get it? It It's because when Jesus said, wait for the gift I'm about to pour out on you, they said, is it at this time that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? This is a common phrase that they were saying in the book of Luke as well, because the disciples thought that the Messiah was going to restore the political, physical kingdom of Israel. And so when Jesus was talking about the gift of the Holy Spirit, that we all like Holy Spirit, we know what that's all about, empowers us for a life of Christ, it's not about all this politics and stuff, these guys didn't get it. They were the ones that followed Jesus physically for three years, seeing all the miracles and all the teaching, and he's like, and they're still like, so, so, when do we get the sword? When do we chase out the Romans? They're still like, oh, oh, this is the power? Do we become like Superman and we fly through the land of Israel and clear out? I don't know what they were thinking, but they weren't thinking about the Holy Spirit as we know it. But still, they obeyed, and they went to Jerusalem. They went to the upper room. We celebrated this a few weeks ago. It's called Pentecost, Uh, and the Holy Spirit was poured out, and then they began to speak in tongues, and then there was this crowd that came together, and this crowd came together, and uh, and Peter stands up, and he preaches. I don't even think that they were thinking this is what was going to happen. They were getting ready for an uprising against the Roman Empire. They weren't starting a church. They were just going, we don't know what happens. The Holy Spirit comes and the Holy Spirit's gonna guide us. They weren't starting a movement. They thought that they were still obeying Judaism because Judaism is fulfilled in Jesus. And that's all they were thinking was going on. So when we look at this passage and we think, oh yeah, yeah, the church stuff, the church stuff. No, no, this is not the church stuff. This was them figuring stuff out on the fly. This was 120 disciples who were in the upper room, get filled with the Holy Spirit, and then preach a sermon, and 3,000 people get saved, and they go, what the heck do we do with you guys? What do we do? They didn't go, oh yeah, yeah, we got our Sunday services and Sunday school, we got our prayer meeting, and hey, come, come, go to prayer meeting, go to this class. They were like, oh my gosh, this is what Jesus wanted? A whole bunch of people suddenly going, yeah, I want to follow Jesus. What do we do about this mob? And so what did they do? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. This is not programs. This is, this is them suddenly going, oh, Holy Spirit has led us to this point and Holy Spirit continues to lead us. Now, Holy Spirit is not about the lame walking and the dead rising. That's a part of it. But Holy Spirit can also lead people to the teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. You know, there's one commentator that said that the evidence that the Holy Spirit moves is that people want to hear the teaching, they want the fellowship, they want the breaking of bread, and they want the prayers. This is the evidence of the Holy Spirit, that people were moved to want to be together. These guys came from different parts of the world. You can read this in Acts chapter 2. They, they came from everywhere, and they are all like, they don't always like each other, but suddenly, because of Holy Spirit, they were like, let's gather. Let's hear what these guys have to say. Who are these guys? Uneducated. Fishermen. Lower class, Mainly. There was one guy who was an assassin. Great, let's hear from this. I want to hear from the assassin personally. He's like, how do you follow Jesus? They were, Let me tell you, sharpening my sword. There's all of this going on. But you know, why that's also important is because when Luke was writing this story and trying to make an accurate and orderly account of the church, he was writing at a time where the church should have died. I just mentioned that Luke was writing this probably somewhere between A.D. 60 to A.D. 80. And in that season, the church was systematically oppressed. There were powers that were trying to completely dismantle the early church. Let me give you an account. In A.D. 70, just around A.D. 70, there was an emperor. His name was Nero. He was the guy in charge of Rome. Nero was bad news. In fact... There are some people who think that in the book of Revelation, when it talks about uh, the beast and, and the abomination of desecration, they think it's Nero. They think that John was writing about Nero because Nero is bad news. He was bad news for the church. He threw Christians into the circus, not for their entertainment, but for other people's entertainment as they were getting mauled by lions and other wild beasts. They were crucified. And then they would take these Christians and they would hang them up on lampposts and burn them as the lampposts, as a sign to other Christians. You want to be a Christian? That's what happens to you in this empire. The historians that look at the early church and the systematic oppression of the early church said the church should have died. There has never been as systematic and thorough a persecution of a religious group than the early Christian church. The fact that Christianity is across the world is an absolute freaking miracle it should not happen. And so when Luke was writing this, some people think that Luke was writing Luke and Acts to be able to bring that account to uh, uh, leaders and rulers. He wrote it to a guy named the most excellent Theophilus. He's probably a uh, high-level leader in Rome, and he wanted Theophilus to have this account that these guys are not trying to overthrow governments, These guys are not trying to turn uh, people violent against the Romans. In fact, Jesus' message was very much one of submitting to the Roman authority. And so he was trying to help them. He was writing this account to help the early church continue to survive. But in these words, we also see how the heck did these guys survive? How? If I were to put a gun to everyone's head... What would end up here? Would we have a church that continues to survive? If everyone in this room died because you're Christians and other people hurt, that we died because we're Christians, would they want to be Christians? Think about all your friends and family. It's like, move away from them. They are the cursed ones. They're going to die. How did the early church survive? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, the breaking of bread and the prayers. When I was reading this and I was studying this, I was like, they didn't, they didn't train for war. There was no POW training that was going on. There was no, okay, this is what they will likely do. So let's see how many lashes you can take before you crack. There was no violence training. There was just simply the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, the breaking of bread and the prayers. And I wonder whether the modern church values the teaching and the fellowship, communion and the prayers, as much as those early guys did. But something else stood out to me, and we're going to talk about those four elements over the next couple of weeks. But today, the thing that really stuck out to me was the first three words. They devoted themselves. See, when I was looking at this, I often read this. This is my lens, that the apostles set up this program. They set up church. This is how the church came about. The apostles kind of going, okay, so what do we do with all these people? All right, we'll do teaching classes. Okay, John, you do Monday. Um, James, you get Tuesday, Andrew, you get Wednesday, um, I like Thursday, I'll do Thursday, and, um, you know, uh, uh, Levi, you get, um, you get Friday, and then maybe Sunday, we'll get a couple of us, and then and we'll, we'll, we'll teach them together, and, and by the way, let, uh, who wants to do, who wants to do prayer, prayer meetings, uh, okay, yep, uh, yep, yeah, yeah, um, you know, Matthew, you can do, you can do, you can do prayer meetings, that's how I kind of imagine it acts 2:42. how did this happen they devoted themselves what what was going on here and i started to think who's they who's they devoted themselves who's this they? you know who's the who's the system who's the guy and i recognize i realized as i read the verse before it says in three thousand were added to their number that day and they devoted themselves See, so often when we think about the church, we think about what the pastors are putting on. We think about what the leaders have organized. We think about the official church as though we get a stamp that says official church business. No. It was the 3,000 who decided on the day of Pentecost, Jesus is real. I'm going to follow Him. That's the they. The 3,000 not the apostles. The apostles didn't devote themselves to the apostles' teaching. They are the ones that adorn the teaching. It's the new believers. It's the early church. It's the people that devoted themselves. It is a choice of the person that has heard about Jesus devoting himself and herself to what the church is doing. See, when I looked at the word devote, I started to think that in our culture, maybe we've lost something because I think that the word devotion has a very emotional content in our culture today. Oh, my dog is so... I'm so devoted to my dog. I'm so devoted to my cat. It's like, oh, I love... It's like, I'm devoted to this. I'm devoted to that. I'm devoted to um, all of these things and it has a very emotional picture. But when I looked at the Greek, the word devote here... One commentator says that the best way to describe the word "devote here is to be persistently obstinate. Mm-hmm. To be persistently obstinate. I asked Beck, what does persistently obstinate look like?" She said, "A big tree of many roots." And so that's what we have up there. <laughs> heckler, someone deal with a heckler in the front row. That'd <laughs> be grounded." To, is it's, it's persistently obstinate is about choice and not about emotion persistently obstinate is about understanding i need to do this and i'm going to be so stubborn about this that no one is going to move me persistently obstinate is about saying that you are not going to easily convince me of a different way of doing this to be persistently obstinate means that I have chosen to be so headstrong about this that you get out of my way because I need to do this. It is a choice. When they heard about Jesus and they heard about what Jesus has done and they were convicted in their hearts about who Jesus is, there was something in them that said, I need to choose to do live differently because this is what this is all about you see there is a train of thought in our culture today that your heart and your intent is enough even if it doesn't come with the actions i've heard people talking about yeah 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 i i thought about it and yeah yeah i, I really wanted to and it's like, why won't you why didn't you yeah i thought about it i don't care what you think about it you weren't there you didn't do what you said you were going to do imagine if i marry beck and i say beck my intention is to love you really well but i don't do the things that communicates that love of beck is that intention good enough so why is intention good enough for the church Why is intention and my heart good enough for the church? Why don't we say what exactly we are devoted to when it comes to God? Why don't we make it clear, I am devoted to God and I can demonstrate to you how. If I were to ask you, how are you devoted to God? Are you going to get all wishy-washy about how your heart is for Jesus? Oh, I cried that day in the service. (laughs) When was the last time you served? When was the last time you gave? When was the last time you you read your Bible? When was the last time you prayed? When When was the last time you actually did something that you said that you intended to do when it came to the church? Now, don't hear this as a condemnation. I'm doing this, I'm being like this because I want myself to be checked i'm doing this as a heart check for me as i'm preparing this and i'm knowing that there's a new season with new life the number one person in this church that i think needs to know that he is being ready for that is me and so i've been checking am i devoted am i devoted am i devoting myself am i doing the things that demonstrate that devotion am i being persistently obstinate you know a little while ago i've always thought that i'm a very devoted reader i would probably read more than the average person i always thought i was doing well but then recently i came into this um thing where someone suggested that if i really want to develop my theology i need to um yeah read some of the current books but also read the church fathers and the really old books and then I realized that uh, when I was at Harvest West years ago, they did a library, at uh, the Bible College, there was a library clearance, and I got volume one of John Calvin's Institutes of Christian Religion. I wanted to bring it, I forgot to, I bought it for three bucks. That book is, um, uh, um, is worth about 60 to 80 bucks at least right now, and I can't get a hold of volume two. If anyone wants to give me volume two, bless ya. Um, <laughs> And I said, you know what, I'm going to do this because this is what I need to do. I need to develop my theology. I want to be a better teacher. I need to do this. I did not touch the book. Because I opened it. It's not fun. John Calvin wrote in French, I believe. And the guy who translated it probably lived about 150 years ago. And I'm looking at this book and I'm like, this is so... It's going to take me about maybe five years to read. I didn't touch it, honestly. It just sat next to my bed. I was like, I'm going to read it before I go to bed. I was like, bad idea. (laughs) But then, a few weeks ago, Beck started a thing where after Pastor Sharon came, she was like, you know what, I'm going to switch up my sleep routine, my wind-down routine to see if it helps me. I was like, okay, yeah, great. And so she started to put this one-hour wind-down thing for herself And I was like, you know what, it's actually kind of, because we always, let's be honest here, we were watching TV shows half an hour before bed because we were just kind of chilling out. But so now we didn't have that time, and I was like, what do I do? You know, Big's doing all her, like, I'm such a pretty woman. (laughs) Dolling herself, no, not really, totally joking. But she's doing a routine, I was like, what do I do? I was like, you know what, I need to start. I sit, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do it. And in two weeks, I've read 25% of one of the hardest books I've ever read. It's as big as a Bible. It's more dense than a Bible. He uses words that I, don't, I still don't know. I didn't check it up because I was like, I don't have a dictionary on me. I'm like, oh, I get the idea, I think. <laughs> For example, he uses the word cavil a lot. The cavil of this person, I was like, is that like Henry Cavill? I only know the person, in cavalier, or not a word cavalier. Anyway, I wasn't devoted to reading until I devoted myself to reading. I wasn't devoted to reading until I started reading, until I persisted in reading, until I became obstinate about my reading. I'm using that as a funny example but think about what you said about God. What are you becoming persistently obstinate or what are you persistently obstinate about when it comes to the things of God? And another issue for us is that we separate the church from Jesus. Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus sent the Holy Spirit to start the gathering of people which became known as the church. The gathering of the people is what the Holy Spirit intended on the day of Pentecost. And these guys didn't gather once a week. They gathered daily. That sounds like persistent obstinacy to me. This is not about becoming religious and legalistic. In fact, we need to think about legalism. Legalism isn't about following rules. That's being a law-abiding citizen. Legalism is when we take shortcuts in our relationship with God. We think that by service, it's going to get me closer to God rather than actually coming close to God. By serving in church, by doing all these things, it's going to bring me closer to God. No. It can, and it will, if you have the right heart, but if your heart is still distant from God, you can be serving your butt off in this room and be no closer to God than you were before. That's legalism. That's using things to get closer to God rather than actually drawing close to God. Attending church, doing church stuff is not legalism it's essential. It can become legalistic when we start to force people to do things. And that's not the point of this message. This point is not like you can never miss any meeting or gathering that will hold. That's not, that, that's, that's not the point. But the point is that if you're going to be devoted to God, how does that actually look like? And it, it, it needs to be put in stone, not in sand, It needs to be something that you set up. As we finish, I want to read this quote to you because this really uh, impacted me. This is written by Ray Ortland, who is a respected theologian and an author, and he writes about this passage. When the early believers converted to Christ, it never occurred to them to fit Him into the margins of their busy lives. They redefined themselves around a new, immovable center. He was not an optional weekend activity along with the kids' soccer practices. They put him and his church and his cause first in their hearts, first in their schedules, first in their budgets, first in their reputations, first in their very lives. They devoted themselves. When I look at that... I think I'm doing okay, but then there are other areas that, as I sit and reflect, I go, I'm not there yet. How did the early church survive? Survive intense, systematic persecution? It's because they had a new, immovable center by which they oriented the rest of their lives. Do you have that center? Do you know that center? Are you persistently obstinate about that center or has somehow jesus crept a little bit more off center and something else has replaced him see as we prepare ourselves for new life what i want is to know that this church has jesus as the very center that i'm orienting the rest of my life to him not my thoughts and my pursuits and my assumptions, I do my best to actually bring that all back to Christ. What is Christ saying about this? What is Christ saying about my marriage? What is Christ saying about my work? What is Christ saying about my mission? What is Christ saying about my lifestyle? What is Christ saying about my finances? What is Christ saying? What is Christ saying? They devoted themselves because they wanted to know what is Christ saying? I read my Bible not because the Bible makes me any holier, but because I want to know what is Christ saying. I pray not because I want God to do things for me, but because I want to know what is Christ saying. I fellowship with other Christians, not because it makes me feel good or or better, but because I want to know what Christ is saying. I want to know what Christ is saying. I want to share one last story before we finish. Can I get the band up as well? Sorry, couch time always pushes me back a little bit. Last story. Um, I remember a few years ago, a number of, quite a long time ago. I wasn't a pastor yet, and um, we had this um, guy who just got saved and came to our church. He was a relative of a few people that were already in our church, and so he knew about our church and stuff. And this guy was—he had lived a terrible life. He had—he uh, literally for many years kept a shotgun under the seat of his ute because he would run drugs and he would need to protect himself. He he had done all sorts of things but he got saved. And when he got saved, he came to church and he was we couldn't get him out of church. We couldn't. He had his own business and so he would do his work and then he keep popping in. And I would literally be like, "Don, don't you have work? I was like, yeah, yeah, I'll get on to that. I was like, that's fine. Like, there's, there's, there's nothing for you to do right now. You can go to work. He's like, oh, yeah, yeah, I'll get to it. He was at every service. He was at every meeting. He joined every team that was physically appropriate for him. So he joined a youth team because youth love rough guys who have got stories to tell. Let me tell you, they, they're the best. No one messes with that guy. I was like, great, you're taking on the worst kids. Show them your shotgun. <laughs> and he was on the host team. He, he would change light bulbs. He would clean toilets. He would wash floors. He would clear out storerooms. He would do whatever. And one day, uh, uh, it, was, it was a church service, and um, I think he actually had just uh, drew, uh, literally been asked to drive off and get some errand done, and he, he was doing it. And I remember my youth pastor telling me, he's like, Nate, I hope that none of those old Christians get to Don. i was like, what do you mean? He's like, have you noticed, like, you know, when someone is young in Christ and on fire for God, he just do anything. But then these old Christians have been doing it for a little while. They think that it is wise to tell these young, on fire Christians, you don't need to do so much. Now, I'm all for boundaries in life. I'm all for making sure that there's balance. But we don't impose balance on a person. Don loved being in church because he loved Jesus. He didn't love being in church and doing all those things because he was earning and thinking that he needed to earn something with Jesus. He was on fire for God because he was on fire for God. Because God had set him on fire and yet when we have been doing church for so long we get to this place of like oh i got burned and i've been disappointed i've been frustrated yes it happens because your people learn how to deal with conflict resolution be devoted to the community being devoted to community means you deal with your crap when you're disappointed and angry with me talk to me don't just leave the church dang it that's so stupid that we treat the church with such disdain because of our pains and our hurts. And then we get passive aggressive and we tell the young Christians, oh, you need to be more wise in your love for Jesus. What about wise up and find your first love? And my youth pastor said that, and I was like, I had to check myself because I was thinking Don's gonna burn out. Don ain't gonna burn out dawn's on fire for God and God's the one that's sustaining him God might deal with the fact that he needs to put certain boundaries in place but let God do it let God be the one that helps us and yes we'll come alongside when we see that the tireless work out what does this look like but we don't set systems. if you serve twice a month that's enough there are different people here with different jobs and different availability i totally get it i'm not saying that you need to be at every single thing i'm not saying that we had 12 hours prayer yesterday why weren't you there for 11 at least (laughs) i'm not saying that but i'm saying flip i want jesus where do i get jesus where people are practicing the things of jesus i'm not going to find jesus on netflix I'm not going to find Jesus at the Pilates class. I'm not going to find Jesus at the gym. I'm going to find Jesus where people are practicing the Jesus stuff. And that's why they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Like I said, I'm not preaching to anyone but myself. I want to devote myself. I want to devote myself. You do what you need to do. You're in this room. You've heard the words. You've heard the stories. I've done what I can. Are you going to treat... Are you going to make Jesus the center the immovable center? Or has Jesus become an add-on to your life? They devoted themselves, and I want to devote myself. And I recognize the immense privilege and responsibility it is that you come here and you listen to me teach as though I'm one of those apostles. I want to devote myself. Can we just stand this morning? I'm done. I want to pray, and you do what you want to do in this moment, what you feel you need to do. Worship. If you feel the worship, worship. If you want to kneel down and recommit yourself, recommit yourself. If you want prayer, we're always here for you. But can I just ask that you walk away at least evaluating how devoted am I? And that's a stupid question because you're either devoted or you're not. There's no such thing as a half-devotion. I can't be half-devoted to Beck. I've got this other side hussy, but I'm devoted to Beck. It's 50%, right? It's 70%. That's at least a credit in the world's eyes. No, it doesn't work like that. I'm either 100% devoted to Beck or I'm not. Let's have that same kind of check in our hearts when it comes to Jesus. So I'm going to close in prayer. You do your hard work. Like I said, if you want prayer, you have come forward head over to have morning tea and do the fellowship. Have conversations, stick around. Dear Jesus, I pray that more than anything that there is a fresh sense of how wonderful you are. We sang that song this morning about how all my delight is in you. I pray that that is not just lip service. I pray that that's not just me saying something for the sake of singing the song. But I pray that that would truly be what is in my heart. All my delight is in you, Lord. And I pray to God that as we go from here, that you just help us, help us. If there's a sense that we go, God, there's a challenge in my heart. I don't know what to do. Holy Spirit, help us to know how to devote ourselves to you in a way that you want us to. I pray that, God, that there will be no legalistic thinking that comes into this process. I pray against that. I pray against any accusation of the enemy that tries to tell us that we're not doing enough. And God, I just pray that, God, that you just draw us closer to you, that you help us to understand that your great love for us and your great grace for us is more than enough. So I thank you, Jesus, and I pray this in your name. Amen. Thank you so much, Church. The band will lead us in this song. If you want to stay, if you want to reflect, go do that. And I will see you in the foyer. Thanks so much. We hope you've enjoyed this week's message. Follow us on Instagram at The Lift Church or on Facebook at Lift Church Perth. That will give you all the up-to-date information about what's happening in the life of our church. Thanks again for listening. God bless.